Hey everybody, I just want to take a moment to talk about a new thing I'm doing. Over the years, many of you have reached out to me telling me how much you love the podcast, but also wish there were more personalized takeaways and more in-depth interactions with our guests to hear what they think about comedy. This is why I'm now launching my new digital academy, Blueprint for Success. With exclusive interviews and comedy philosophies of stars and industry veterans, personalized versions of the Industry Standard podcast, commercial-free, and one-on-one coaching time with me. Blueprint for Success will give you the powerful tools that will take you up the elevator beyond the competition and reach the highest possible levels to achieve your dreams. Whether it be stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, hosting, radio podcasting, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or an agent. Now I'm here to help, personally. We'll go on an express train of comedy and entertainment like nobody else has before. You can find out more about Blueprint for Success and the comedy business on my website at barrycats.com. Together, we'll take your career where you want it to go. week. It's been an original week because I experienced something for the first time. And that is the loss of my mother, Barbara Muriel Katz. And this podcast has become a really special thing for me because for all of you all over the world who've been so incredibly supportive and have called me and written me and emailed me and Facebooked me and FedExed me and messengered me, all these incredibly kind words, I thought it appropriate 
for this particular podcast featuring somebody who my mother was very knowledgeable of and loved her music. And I'm talking about Dionne Warwick. I thought I'd just say a few words before I started the podcast and let you know that I am uh, dedicating this podcast, my mom. And there's so many things that she brought to me that have shaped me who I am today. And I am very grateful for that. And she really loved me and set an example for me of not only how to be loved, but how to give to other people and how to love other people. And there's so many stories that I could tell about my mom because growing up without a father, it was very challenging, but I never felt that I didn't have a father, that my mom was selfless and she gave of herself to me. And every time I came home, there was a meal on the table. Even if it was two o'clock in the morning, there was something hot that she was ready to feed me and make everything all right. Any problem I had, she was there in her own unique way. And it was incredible how accessible she was, knowing that there were no cell phones, no emails, no texts. But it seemed like every time I called home, my mom was there. And I remember one time I bought this crazy broken down car that I thought was a good deal. And I remember going on the Massachusetts Turnpike and having it break down on the Turnpike and me walking about a mile to a payphone and assessing my situation and calling that home number, which I can't believe I remember to this day, 413 Five six seven three zero four eight, and lo and behold, as always happened, my mom picked up. I told her what happened. I told her where I was, and she came. And she drove up behind my car on the Massachusetts Turnpike, with cars speeding by at sixty seventy five miles an hour in the main lane as we were far on the breakdown lane. And she got out of her car, which was a 1973 red Camaro. She closed the door and she had a bag in her hand. And she came around and hugged me and kissed me on the cheek and said, I love you, son. Before we do anything, I know you might be hungry. Why don't we have some lunch? And on the hood of this broken down car, I think it was a Carmen Ghia, she laid down the tablecloth and all these plates of china 
and silverware and a thermos. And she served lunch on top of the hood of the Carmen Ghia. And before she left, she called a tow truck. So right as we were finishing lunch, it came, <laughs> took the car away, probably the last time I ever saw the car. And then we drove back home together. And as I sit here and drink constant comment tea, which is, was her favorite tea that she used to have in the house all the time in a tin box, and look out at this beautiful skyline in Los Angeles, I think to myself, what a beautiful life it is when you have somebody like my mom to share it with. I love you, Mom. Well, you came and opened me And now there's so much more I see And so by the way, I thank you Oh, and then For the times when we
go in three, two. We ain't one at a time in here. We're mass communicating. This show will have laughter. I got everybody pregnant with Barry Katz and semen. Infections caused by jacuzzi water. I'm not comfortable with the tone this is taking. Okay, here we go. Is there anything else I should know? You're on. What? Out of the air! People on Twitter have been asking for Barry Katz to come back a lot. If you're undeniable, you will not be denied. If you want to be successful in show business, you get yourself a Jew white manager like Barry Katz. <laughs> Here we go. You fucking firing me up, Katz. Being a manager is just turning no's into yeses. Undeniable. Creating holy shit moments. I love this man. Barry Katz. Back in the house. 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 Let's do this. All right, welcome back to another episode of Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz, after my gut-wrenchingly sad <laughs> cold open that uh, reduced myself to tears and my guest wondering, why am I here? I'm so, so excited to introduce my guest, Dionne Warwick, and I'm going to give her the proper introduction, which normally is almost as long as my cold opens because I want the world to know how special she is, and so I will start and uh and you'll enjoy it scintillating soothing and sensual best describe the familiar and legendary voice of five time that's right five time grammy award-winning music legend dionne warwick um and if you don't know her name crawl out from your cave <laughs> okay because she is a cornerstone of american pop music and she's amazing and she's celebrating 50 years in this business as an international music icon and concert act still. She's had 75 charted hit songs and sold over, get this everybody, a hundred million records. Does anybody have a hundred million of anything? <laughs> no, they don't. A hundred million records. That's insane. It's incredible. It's luck. <laughs> uh, luck is when what? Preparation meets opportunity? That's true. Uh, she began singing professionally in 1961 after being discovered by a young songwriting team, Burt Bacharach and Hal David. She had her first hit in 1962 with Don't Make Me Over, and less than a decade later, she had released more than 18 consecutive top 100 singles including her classic Bacharach David recordings, Walk On By. Oh, I'm getting emotional again. Anyone who had a heart, message to Michael, promises, promises, which is one of the most, I don't even know how it's possible to sing that song. I don't know it. you have to be, I don't even think you can be human to sing that song. crazy, that's what you have to be. <laughs> uh, House is not a home. Alfie, say a little prayer. This girl's in love with you. I'll never fall in love again. Reach Out For Me, and the theme from Valley of the Dolls. Together with Back Rack and David, she accumulated more than 30 hit singles and close to 20 best-selling albums during their first decade together. She received her first Grammy Award in 1968 for the mega hit Do You Know the Way to San Jose and a second Grammy in 1970 for the best-selling album I'll Never Fall in Love Again. She became the first African-American solo female artist of her generation to win the prestigious award for Best Contemporary Female Vocalist Performance. This award was only presented to one other legend, Miss Ella Fitzgerald. Warwick's performance at the Olympia Theater in Paris skyrocketed her to international stardom, where she established herself as a major force in contemporary music and gained popularity among the European audience as well. 
1968, she became the first solo African-American artist to perform for the Queen of England at a Royal Command performance. She's been a pioneer and one of the first female artists to popularize classic movie themes with such songs as Alfie and The April Fools. We're going to talk a lot about where she's from and her beginnings in East Orange, New Jersey. But just suffice to say, if I can, I don't know of too many artists. You could count them on half a hand that have had the kind of success that she's had. And it's an enormous accomplishment. What's totally amazing is when I sit across from this woman. There is not a wrinkle on her face. <laughs> I, I, don't, I don't know why. I mean, it, it doesn't even seem possible. I mean, just a, an incredibly beautiful, extraordinary woman. And please welcome my guest today, Dionne Warwick. Wow. This is in a word. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. I'm so happy you're here. And what I'd love to do, if you don't mind, before we get into all the stuff with this new album, which I'm so excited to talk about, mm -hmm. is I want to go way, way back. Way, way back. I want you to take me to New Jersey, the kind of neighborhood and the family you grew up in. And what was your first inspiration to think that you would want to be in the music business. Okay. Um, as you reiterated, I was born and raised in East Orange, New Jersey. Um, I lived on a street called Sterling Street, which was, I describe it as virtually the United Nations. We had every race, color, creed, religion, you can imagine living on Sterling Street. And um, had two of the best parents that anybody could ever have. My daddy was my best friend, and my mommy too, but daddy was more my best friend. Um, middle class family. Um, didn't realize that we were not wealthy because we were. We were wealthy with health and love and compassion and encouragement. And uh, we got our spankings, like everybody else did. Had a lot of sleepovers. Um, went to Lincoln School, grammar school, which now bears the name the Dionne Warwick Institute. <laughs> yeah, they, they dedicated the school to me. Uh, now it's about 11 years ago. Um, from Lincoln School, I went to a, a junior high school called Vernon L. Davey, which bears the name now of the Cicely Tyson, Tyson Performing Arts Center. I think that's what they're calling it. By the way, I'm renaming this office the Dionne Warwick Management Office oh of Cat. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, maybe I'll get my son a, a gig now. <laughs> Um, from Vernon L. Davey, which we call BLD, went to East Orange High School, where I graduated, and they named the auditorium at the high school in my name. Wow. So up to this point, any thoughts of being in the music business? No. Nothing. Just I went through know. high school. You didn't know what you wanted to do? I, I knew that music was going to be a part of my life. I come from a, a music family family of, in my opinion, 
of which I respect, <laughs> uh, are some of the greatest singers that ever was blessed with the voice that God gave us all. And um, literally, being in the industry never really entered my mind. I received the scholarship to go to the Hart College of Music in Hartford, Connecticut, as you pointed it out. And um, while in school, I was going back and forth from Hartford to New York. I arranged my classes so that I could have the Thursday, Friday, and Saturdays off to do background work and demonstration records. And that's where I met Bert first. We were doing a background session. Hey, everybody. Let me remind you one more time about my new blueprint for success. It's a project I've spent months and months working on just to help you jumpstart your comedy career and beat the competition. Whether you want to do stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, radio, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or agent, Blueprint for Success will give you all the tools you need to take your career to the highest levels. With exclusive interviews, my top 50 commercial-free episodes from Industry Standard, one-on-one -on -one coaching with me, and unprecedented access into my knowledge and experience from over 40 years in this crazy business. I guarantee you that with Blueprint for Success, you'll become the creator you've always dreamed of becoming. No one's asking me to do this. I want to do it because I want to help you become truly undeniable. So just go to barrycats.com, click on Blueprint for Success, and start your incredible journey today. I truly can't wait to work with you to help you change the trajectory of your comedy career forever. Now, how do I'm sorry to interrupt, but how do you know, like, you're, how do you know you're even capable of doing background work? Like, how did you know that you have the confidence to know that you could get that gig or even, because obviously there's a lot of people who wanted those jobs. How did you get it? Well, we we had we did this. Um, let me back up a bit. My I come from a gospel singing family, and they were performing at the Apollo Theater on a gospel fest. And my sister and I happened to be there visiting my mom, my aunts and uncles. And um, <laughs> this man ran into the backstage area, needing voices to do a session. And, of course, he wanted any one of the gospel groups to come and do the session. And they couldn't leave, of course. Oh, big mouth me. Said, okay, we'll do it, not knowing what background was at all. And uh, he says, okay, tell me who we are. I said, my gospel group, we'll do it for you. So I called Carol, who's my cousin, and uh, my sister Dee Dee and I said, and I looked at Dee Dee and said, what's the background? <laughs> 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 she looked at me and said, I don't have a clue either. But, uh, you know, the guy asked us to be at a place called Savoy Records in Newark at a certain time, and that we would be doing background for Sam the Man Taylor, saxophonist, and uh, Nappy Brown. Sam the Man Taylor's song was Won't You Deliver Me? And Nappy Brown was uh, the right time is the night time. I think everybody's heard that. Yeah. And when we got there, uh, there was a guitar player. His name was Bill. I'll never forget him. And um, he says, and what do you gals do? I said, well, we sing. 
He says, yeah. He says, you do good harmony? I said, of course we do good harmony. You know, and he says, okay, well, we'll find out. That's when we found out what background was. Just that ooh-ah and that occasional yay-yay behind whoever's doing the leads, which we did all the time. So it was nothing new to us, which is how we discovered that we could do background work. And Bill was so impressed with us that he said he was going to kind of let New York know that he had a group of girls that could put some sting on some records for a lot of the producers. And he did that. And I got a call from Lieber and Stoller asking if we would come over and um, do, do some background for the Drifters. And I said, sure. So off to New York we went. We're Bird Backrack and a young man named Bob Hilliard, God rest his soul, had written this song called Mexican Divorce that we did the background for. And after meeting Bert, he asked if I would be interested in uh, continuing to do this. Um, I was the reader of the group at Red Music. And that uh, he would be writing songs with a new songwriting partner named Hal David. And would I be interested in doing demonstration records and background work on the on their recording, on the music they were writing. And I said, okay, fine, sounds good to me as long as it doesn't interfere with my education because my mother will kill both of us. <laughs> <laughs> so that now, was the agreement that we made. <laughs> you're obviously in college. You're somewhere between 18 and 21. Mm -hmm. You're a young, beautiful woman traveling to New York the biggest city in the world, not exactly the safest city in the world, and you're just going and do, how do you have the resources to be able to go and do and be safe and put yourself up and go back and forth? I was in college. I was uh, eating five boxes of Kraft macaroni and cheese a week, and that was my thing, about 20 cents each, uh, five for a dollar. Well, basically, it was, it was very easy traveling to New York at that time, and it was nowhere near the madness that we are enjoying or hearing about today at that time. And it was three of us traveling at the same time. Um, 75 cent on the 118 from Newark to New York City to Port of Authority. And from Port of Authority, we were four blocks from the studios that we were working in. Uh, if we didn't walk, we jumped in a cab and got to the studios. Um and you come back the same day. Yeah, and we do our sessions, get on the bus and get back to Newark, take uh, the bus up to East Orange and get off and go home. So when did you know in your heart, I can do this and I'm, I'm not a background person. I can, I can do this. I can do what the Drifters did. I can do what these people do. I can be... I don't want to say bigger or more successful, but I can, I can compete. I never did. It's not what I really wanted to do. I'd be as satisfied to this very day to be standing behind someone singing in front of me, doing that ooh-ah and that occasional yay-yay still, you know. <laughs> I'm very good at that. <laughs> but um, I did a demonstration record that uh, Backrack David wrote for the Shirelles. And it was sent to Florence Greenberg at Scepter Records. And she did not want the song. She wanted the voice. And that was me. 
and it was a case of um, if mommy, because she was the one that said education first. I don't care what comes up, education first. And I totally agree with her. Um, if she would agree to allow me to do this, um, I struck a deal with Backrack and David as my producers and um, made them promise me. It was a song that I did as a demo that I said, well, if I do record, this has got to be the song that I record first. And that song was called Make It Easy on Yourself. <laughs> I was on my way back into New York from school to do a session for them. And I happened to have the radio on in my little raggedy car. And out of my speakers and the radio came this gravelly voice of a male singing Make It Easy on Yourself, who just happened to be Jerry Butler. Wow. I was... But not too happy, let me put it that way, you know. So by the time I got to New York, I kind of confronted Mr. Backrack and Mr. David with them breaking their promise to me. How, I mean, how could you give the song that you said you were going to give to me and I'm listening to it on the radio by this man named Jerry Butler? And, and um, we kind of bantered back and forth, not too pleasantly either. And I finally said, I said, listen, the one thing you can never, ever do is try to make me something I'm not, so don't make me over. You know, get your act together. How David put pen to paper, came up with a little song called Don't Make Me Over. Happened to be my very first recording. And there is our, our history. Now, what's really interesting about this, and sitting across from you, it's I almost feel like you went against your instincts because it seems to me that you're the kind of person that you don't cross, you don't lie to, and so you had a relationship, your first relationship with these guys. Mm -hmm. They broke the foundation of the relationship in the very beginning, and it's like... It's like, I'm not to use this as an example, which it's a bad example probably, but like if you start dating a girl or a guy and you say, hey, listen, we're going to be girlfriend and boyfriend, and then the day after you say that, you find out that they're sleeping with somebody else, mm. you don't normally say, okay, I'll forget about that one. Let's keep going out together because in your mind, you normally know that patterns continue. Mm -hmm. And once the red flag is up with something that happens, chances are it's going to happen again. But you, in your heart, some reason knew that they would never do that again to you. Exactly. But you didn't have any power and they didn't have that much power. So how did you know that they would never cross you again? I made sure of that based on the fact that they knew I was not going to stand for it. You know, I made it perfectly clear. I am who I am. You are who you are. And if you want this voice, that's the way it's got to be. Got it. So you did have inside enormous confidence in your voice. Absolutely. So back then in your teens and early 20s, 
you knew based on what you heard on the radio and what you heard from yourself, you knew, even though you weren't caring whether you competed or not, you knew what you had. Yes, I did. I, I knew what I had because of where I come from and the environment that I came from. Uh, as I said, I, I come from a family that undoubtedly had the finest voices that anyone would ever want to hear. And there's an old saying, the apple doesn't fall that far from the tree. And so I, I am a combination of my entire family. Couldn't go wrong as far as I was concerned. So you sign a contract with them. Did you, you normally when people sign a contract, they have attorneys looking over things these days. There's all these, you know, different eyes looking at things, how it's going to be. Because every little thing, just one half a point. If you're selling 100 million records, one half a point could be the difference between millions and millions of dollars. Mm -hmm. Who was guiding you and helping you when it came to signing these contracts? How did you know that you were going to be taken care of the way other artists were going to be taken care of? My daddy. Your daddy. That's right. I didn't sign anything. My daddy took care of that. He made sure that his little girl was going to be taken care of. Nice. <laughs> I can imagine those negotiations. Uh, he was pretty adamant about what he wanted for me, what could be in contracts, what could not be in them. Uh, basically, he rewrote the contract for me. People out there listening to this podcast, they think, oh, well, what's going to happen if I put out this video and it doesn't work? Or what if I do this song and it doesn't work? Or, or what if I do this stand-up act and it doesn't work or this album? It's like, do you think that Madonna puts out an album and she thinks, yeah, all 12 of these songs are going to be hit songs? <laughs> no, they're not. You know, they're, they're, you know that some aren't going to resonate. Right. Some are going to fail. But true to the book, The Long Tail, if you haven't read it, buy it, which states sometimes it doesn't matter. There can be a lot of songs that maybe don't sell that well, but if you collectively put them together, they can be equal to the biggest hit you ever have. Yeah, true. And so that's what's great about the way things work today. But let's face it, how often does somebody go in and the song that you were supposed to sing, which probably would have been a bigger hit had you sung it, <laughs> that was a hit song. Yeah. And so, and your one was, I mean, did you expect that or were you like in the situation where you just were blown away and... Let me tell you, um, after recording Don't Make Me Over and a couple of other songs that were... We, you know, when we went into the studio, we did three three songs usually in a three-hour period of time. And we usually had a half hour overtime. Um, I happened to be coming from the grocery store, actually. Had <laughs> a radio on. And out of the radio came this voice saying, don't make me over. I pulled over and turned that radio up as loud as I could all the windows down on the car. I said, that's me. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it was the most exciting thing in the world. You know, all of a sudden, I'm listening to me coming out of a radio. I mean, how can that be? Tell me how 
during the next few months and year before the next one came out, how your life changed? Well, I had the opportunity to travel a little bit. Um, my first job, actually, was in Florida, Miami, Florida, at a little club called The Night Beat at a hotel called the Sir John Hotel. God, this stuff is coming back to me. Um, and I knew about the Sir John Hotel because my dad was also, he was a poem reporter. And when they, they made the runs from New York to Miami or wherever they were going on the Silver Streak, he, that's where they, they were allowed to stay. You know, there's still that differentiation of black and white. Segregation was running high at the time. It was the 60s still. But the Sir John, <clears throat> excuse me, Sir John Hotel had a, had the night beat hotel um, nightclub in it, and uh, that was my first job. So I got on an airplane for the first time, and flew to Miami, and I stayed there. And the owner of the hotel, of course, knew my daddy, because daddy stayed there. So I was. I was all at all times kind of being protected. You know, somebody always had their arm around me or their eye on me. So I felt safe at any given time. It's incredible. So so then tell me about how things started building and when you actually said to yourself 100% I'm never doing another day job again. I'm working in this profession. This is where my money comes from. And goodbye to everything else. I think it came after feeling the sting of not enjoying a hit record. Talk about that. Don't Make Me Over was um, ironically charted. It was it was a pretty big hit record for me and then I had two other records that came out uh, a song called I Smiled Yesterday that everybody hated <laughs> especially the jocks they wouldn't they didn't, what is she singing about and then there was another song called This Empty Place which I still love and uh, I even think about redoing that one at any rate I had two Almost turntable hits, they're called. And finally, I was uh, asked to do a show at the Brooklyn Fox for Murray the K, Christmas show. Murray the K, the famous DJ. That's right. And at that time, there was a little tune called Walk On By, and the other side of that was Any Old Time of the Day which is the side that I chose. I love that song, still too today. And Murray did a contest with it. He flipped it over. He played both sides of the record and had people calling in which side they wanted to hear and which side they thought would be the hit. Now, isn't that unusual? Because normally the B side was the yeah. one that wasn't going to be the Absolutely. hit. And um, out of that came Walk On By. And from that day to this, never look back. Incredible. 
So tell me about the relationship with Burt Bacharach and Hal David, because he's working relationships. A lot of people in our audience, they work in different places all over the place, not just in the entertainment business. And you have these collaborations where sometimes what happens is you start off at a lower level and then you start doing great work. You're about eye level with the person. And then what happens is you start doing better work and better work and better work. And no matter how great their work is, you are the face and you are the voice of whatever it is you're doing. And pretty soon they're looking up at you saying, holy, holy Moses, she's bigger than we are right now. People know her more than us. How did you, how did you keep it together with them knowing that you went from a point where you were below them and slowly rose to the point where you were much bigger than they were, much more powerful than they were, yet you were having to collaborate together and create more things together. Were there ever were there ever issues or problems regarding that where things went down? No, there weren't. You know, um, I think more than anything else that we, we meaning Backrack and David and myself, we appreciated what each of us brought to the table. And literally depended upon each of us doing that. You know, Bert with some of those magnificent melodies that anyone would want to listen to, Hal David writing words that I still to this very day am in awe of. I think there's a greater lyricist that ever lived. And they both depended upon me to bring it to the listening ear. So we each had our part to play. In fact, it was so funny because we finally became known in the industry as the triangle marriage that worked. (laughs) Um, We became dear friends, and to to this day, you know, I miss how desperately I do. He was the glue that kept Bert and I from strangling each other most times. (laughs) But, you know, he was the, the calming force. They kept us both on on a par with each other, so we, we never had any um, any problems whatsoever. So there was never a time where you woke up one morning and you're like, "Wow, let me write that down." God, that's a great verse I had in my head from this dream. And I have this little feeling about this music that's in my head right now that's coming to me. Mm. There was never a point in time where you said, hey, guys, you know, I have this these words that I'd like to do. And, and I have this kind of music that's been in my head the past few nights. Can I tell you what this is and do it? Or you always, everybody always knew their place. No, I, you know, I, I, I think that part of music, writing it and... And and making it cohesive is a very special talent. And I was so busy running around the world um, and enjoying the fact that these songs that I was singing were specifically being written for me. You know, nobody else could sing them, apparently, um, because I was singing them all. So it, it never entered my mind to become songwriter or um, 
a lot of the songs that were written for me even were things that I said that how so oh, that's a good idea there's this a little song called whoever you are I love you from the play promises promises and that song came from something I said to Hal so it's not like I wasn't an intricate part of the um the compositions that I I finally ended up singing um that I had nothing to do with the actual writing of them. And one of the things that I find fascinating is that, you know, you work so hard, and when you're working on your craft so hard, and then you're touring and going all over the world, how did you ever find time to have, like, a normal relationships? <laughs> I mean, especially knowing that you're a hugely successful person. Most everyone you meet who even would want to go out with you most likely wouldn't be a person who was in the limelight that you were in. Mm -hmm. How did you handle and, and be able to navigate through the world knowing that you're, you're going from one place to, because I know for myself alone, what it's like to keep something together. It's very difficult yeah. and I'm here. How did you manage your personal life and your professional life to oh. be able to make, things work and it's, it wasn't easy it was not easy believe me I um, met a young man named Bill Elliott who was a drummer part of a trio and they were playing in um, clubs that we would go down and hang out in and see that's 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 one of the things I, I think and hope people uh, appreciate and realize about me, you know, I have, I'm a firm believer in being who I am. I don't want to be somebody else. I like me, first of all. So does everybody else. And uh, well, that's a good thing, you know. And you know, I, the, the friends that I had when I was in high school are still my friends. We still get together. Um, you know, we. It's that normal thing that I have that I feel. I must sustain, you know, it's like, why would I want to do that? There's no reason for it. And um, like I tell some of the kids, they, they look at you and say, oh, wow, 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 wow. And I let them know, I, you know, listen, I get up the same way you do my hair. I stand all over my head. I run to the bathroom and brush my teeth as fast as I can. And I put on my pants one leg at a time, just <laughs> like you do. So, you know, look at me as a human being. That's what I want you to always think of me as. I am not that on that pedestal that most people are put on. You know, I, I go to the grocery store. And when people see me in the grocery store, what are you doing here? I got to eat, too. <laughs> <laughs> you know? So let's, um, let's look at me for who I really am. And I like being who I am. I really do. So it wasn't hard for me to navigate a relationship. You know, I fell in love. Uh, he fell in love with me. And then all of a sudden I realized I lost something that I really value very much, and that's my freedom. You know, being able to go when I want to go and do what I wanted to do. And so I woke up one morning after we had got married. 
It's not a, it's not funny, but it is funny. And I literally got on an airplane and went to Texas and crossed the border into Juarez. And the funny part of that whole thing is, is the first song that we did as background session for the Drifters was called Mexican Divorce. <laughs> <laughs> and that's what I got. I got a Mexican divorce. And after I got my divorce, I got back on a plane, came back to New Jersey. And Bill said, where have you been? I said, I went to Mexico. He said, you went where? I said, I went to Mexico and I got a divorce. He said, you got what? I, said, I got a divorce. I don't want to be married anymore. And I really didn't. <laughs> he he kind of looked at me like I had 14 heads, of course. And um, so that was that. And he continued to pursue me. The power of no. Yeah. <laughs> it was like, why don't you leave me alone? I tell you, I don't want to be married anymore. And I was leaving for, I was in San Francisco, where Bill actually had moved, was playing drums in a little trio there. And I was working at the Fairmont Hotel. And he came to one of my shows and uh, took me to dinner after. And, you know, we started talking and talking and talking and talking. And he says, well, where are you going from here? So I'm going to Italy. So he says, okay, well, how long are you going to be there? And I told him I'd be there a couple of weeks. He says, okay. I was in Milan. And when I got off the plane, Bill was standing at the airport. Wow. It was, it was like, what are you doing here, you know? Uh, we got married again in Italy. And we're married for the next is it 12, 15 years. And out of that, two most incredible young men now are in my life, David and Damon. And um, it was one of the best things that ever resulted from our, our union. All right, take me back to the first song that was up for a Grammy Award. And, uh, oh, and goodness. you go Do and you you're... know the way to say it, <laughs> Not one of my favorite I was gonna songs. Ask, I was going to ask you about this because this is something that happens sometimes with people. And I personally, not to say that I could ever, I'm like a pinhead, I'm like a speck of dust on the carpet compared to your career. But sometimes I'll be working on a television show that I'm executive producing or something and I'll be like, what am I doing? People are watching this. They're, you know, they're, they're liking it. Mm -hmm. But, and that's the thing about all entertainment. You know, there's these songs that you have or these, these television shows that are on the air and they're huge hits. And you're like, am I missing something? <laughs> and was it, was it because I had heard that you didn't like that song. It's so true. It still is true. So did it sting a little bit knowing that you're, because I, I would imagine winning your first Grammy is probably <laughs> one of your proudest moments, but it must be a paradox knowing that you're winning it and you're up there and putting on the smile saying, hey, I love this song. And then no, I never said that. <laughs> I never said that. You know, in fact, um, when when the song was brought to me, I, you know, I just kept saying, I don't want to sing this song. <laughs> and... and 
Hal finally said, well, why don't you want to sing this song? I said, Hal, I, I really don't think you wrote this song. And he looked at me and said, of course I wrote this song. <laughs> I said, no, I mean, I mean, let's listen to some of the lyrics that you've written for me to sing. You know, walk on by and anyone who had a heart. And, I mean, and you got me singing, whoa, 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 whoa. No, no, no. You could not have written that. And then he explained to me his affinity for San Jose, that he was stationed there. I fell in love with it. And because I loved him so much, I said, okay, I'm going to sing this song just for you, not for me. And as I jokingly say, but Matt, I cried all the way to the bank. <laughs> <laughs> So, and yes, so and San Jose. And so what was the feeling you had? You're in, you know, you're in an audience in an auditorium and you're sitting there with other people who are nominated. Were you saying to yourself, there's no way in hell this song is going to win a Grammy? <laughs> exactly. It's so true. I said, you know, it's like, okay, who's going to walk away? Whoa, 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 whoa. And when they called my name, it was like, oh, my God. I just won a Grammy. I, I, that's got to be, I don't know what it is now, but I know then, one of the most exciting moments. I truly believe that can happen to any one of my peers or anyone else that was nominated for a Grammy. They, they meaning my peers, those who have the power to vote, say you're the best this year we love what you did this year and we're gonna reward you for that and knowing that the industry awarded me this honor is a very exciting time very exciting now you were performing during the most tumultuous time in our history. So here you are, you're writing music, you're performing music, you're putting out music during the time of our nation in 63 when Kennedy was assassinated, yeah. 68 when Martin Kennedy Luther King, King and Robert Kennedy were assassinated. Yeah. How did you change as a person and how did your music change during those times? You, I imagine you're putting out things for people in a different way who have lost their innocence. And I always say, you know, everybody can point to a time where they lost their innocence mm -hmm. and they became a man or a woman. And it's not, I'm not talking about losing your virginity. Yeah, exactly. I'm talking about something that happened in your life that blew a hole through you, mm -hmm. that made you the artist that you really are today. So I wanted to ask you about performing that time, but I also wanted to ask you, was there something in your life that really crushed you or you became like you realized I'm a, you know, I'm a woman now and I'm not a girl anymore. I've, I've seen this happen yeah, and, and now I've got to go to the next level in my life. Uh, they, they, that period from 63 
through the early 70s even. Those were dark periods, you know. I think what really gave me uh, the the strength and the, the fortitude to to continue to do and bring messages because we are messengers. Well, I, and, and I always felt you were a messenger for the positive. Absolutely. And because, as I said earlier on, and well, during our talk here, Hal David had one of the most prolific lyricists. He had the ability to take the most unkind things that were going on in the world and was able to put almost a positive spin on it. And I was fortunate enough to be the one that that was able to give it to your ears. Um, During those periods, there were songs like What the World Needs Now is Love, The Windows of the World, I Say a Little Prayer for You. These were all songs that were geared to uplift people. It was during also the Vietnam War was when I Say a Little Prayer was written, which gave people hope, inspired them to believe that there were that that had to come to an end and that our babies would be coming home. Um, the unfortunate thing was how they were treated once they got home, but at least they were home. And uh, we're still, I still, in fact, feel that we still haven't done enough for those particular soldiers, you know, men and women that truly fighting for something they didn't even understand what they were fighting for, nor did we, you know, yet they were over there doing it. Uh, No respect, no, I applaud you, I embrace you, I'm going to, whatever it is that you need done, we must do for you. I don't think that that kind of an attitude happened until well after that war was over. I mean, really well after. We still have these these men and women sleeping on the trellises and in the street, and it's just an injustice. It really is a true injustice. Um, I, I never understood how we could do that. I mean, my grandfather, who was a minister, my dad's father. He always told told us, you know, we did Sunday school and and all that good stuff. But at that tender age of nine and ten, eleven, he pounded into us that we are all here, every single human being. We're all here to be of service to each other. I care what you do, who you are. That's why we're here. We're human beings, and we should be treating each other in that fashion. 
And that's what I grew up with. And that's what I carry with me. As far as I'm concerned, everybody deserves that right. Everybody. So segregation and discrimination, I always thought and still do think of it as the most stupid thing that exists today. And here you were in a position where your music was crossing over. Which is the funniest thing in the world for me. What is crossing over? Music is music. There are only eight notes in a scale, okay? I guess I'll I'll rephrase that question. (laughs) What I mean is that from that club in Miami, in that hotel, which was basically an all-black audience, I don't know how you word it, so I'm... I'll let you word it, but what was the first show you did where you looked out in the crowd and you're like, wow, this is a, uh, this is a little bit different than, uh, than it's been in the past. When was that? And what was the performance when you noticed that, Hey, I guess, uh, I guess I'm not just performing for all black audiences. I guess, um, um, my tours, my first tours, um, you know, although the the majority of the, the so-called nightclubs were primarily geared toward, towards a black audience. But then when I did my first real tour, uh, it was a, a Henry Wynn tour, and... And I'm still trying to figure out what what the connotation is of Chitlin Circuit. I have no clue as to what that is. Uh, because Sam Cooke was the first tour I did, he headlined. And on that tour was um, the Shirelles. Um, oh, goodness, I think you really tested my brain here. Um... The Orlans, um, Otis Redding. Um, <laughs> about eight or ten acts on that tour. And we, we were playing places that were primarily places that only white people used to go to. And in fact, I remember vividly one of the first places was in South Carolina. And it was the Coliseum. We were sitting on the bus, and finally we all went inside to do our sound check and set up. And we know, it was quite noticeable that one side was seating, and the stage was split down the middle, and one side on the other side was standing. The seated side were for white people, and the standing side for black people. And Sam said to me, because he knew me from gospel, when he was at the Soul Stairs, he and my mom's group and and, and the Soul Stairs uh, were primarily on, they did a lot of uh, gospel programs together, so I knew who he was. And he, he said to me, now I want you to be a good girl. I said, what do you mean be a good girl? He said, I don't want you to turn your back on the white people. I said, why not? He said, because I want you to play both sides. I said, okay. 
I can do that. And I did. You know, because both sides had bought my records. So it, it made all the sense in the world to me not to turn my back on anybody. So what I did was I played to the orchestra. Straight ahead. You got one side of me, and you got one side of me. So everybody got a piece of me. <laughs> did you ever, like, do a show with a group of people like that, many artists? And was there a point in time where, because, in, in, you know, i am come from the comedy world. What's really fascinating in the comedy world, sometimes you can, like, comedians go on one after the other, and somebody will go on, like, let's say, fifth out of ten people, and they'll get, like, a standing ovation, and all of a sudden the show is over. Yeah. Like I interviewed Louis Anderson, yeah. and he talked about the HBO Young Comedian special with Rodney Dangerfield, mm -hmm. and how Rodney asked him to close the show. I want Louis, I want you to close the show. I want you to headline the show. There was like eight people. Mm -hmm. And he was so excited until Sam Kinison went on fourth, and he said, he said that the show was over. Mm -hmm. And he went out on the street, and he just walked around thinking, okay, Louis, your content is great. Your material is great. It always works. You're going to do well. You're going to get them to be where you are. It doesn't matter what he did. Mm -hmm. And he came back in, and he did an amazing show. It wasn't the same as Sam, but he did an amazing show. Were there times when you'd go on, like, in the middle East shows, and you'd get off stage, and the person going after you would be like, God, could you leave something for me? <laughs> you know what? No. Um, my first time at the Apollo Theater, I'll never forget it. Um, I, was, I was nervous as a kitten. I, you know, the Apollo's reputation precedes it. And that is where that saying comes from. If you can make it at the Apollo, you can make it anywhere in this entire world. I don't care where it is. And I was standing in the wings... And Nina Simone was standing backstage, and she, she said, hello, little girl. And I turned around and said, oh, my God, Nina Simone. I said, hi. <laughs> you know? And she said, well, you getting ready to go out there, huh? I said, yeah, I am. She said, I want you to do me one favor. I said, what's that? She said, when you go out there, go out there knowing you're not opening this show. You're closing it. I said, but I am opening it. She said, no, you're closing it. When you walk out on that stage, it's yours. Whoever comes after you, it will be theirs. But when you're out there, it is your stage. And make it as difficult as you possibly can for anybody to walk out on that stage when you come off of it. I've never forgotten that. And that's what I do. You get the very best that I have to give to you. And I want anybody to think they can come on after me. That's fantastic. I guess what I'm going to do now, if you'll oblige me, is yeah. I'm going to mention some names. Okay. And just tell me the first thing that comes to your mind, anything, because you've worked with so many different people. Mm -hmm. And... Whatever you feel, it might be a short, quick story. It might be anything, but just, just something. Sure. Stevie Wonder. 
One of my children. <laughs> I've known Stevie since he's nine years old. And um, there is a funny story with him. The Sherelle, Stevie, and myself were the three Americans to perform at the Olympia Theater on a show called Ladles Le- Jejun, The Idols of the Young. And um, Stevie was there with his mommy and a tutor. And we were backstage, and the Shirelles hated, literally hated, a dress of mine. It was a red dress that I happened to love. And they just thought that was the ugliest dress they had seen in their lives. And they begged me, don't wear that dress. Please don't wear that dress. And I said, I don't wear my dress. I love my dress. Well, they got Stevie to say to me, because I came out of the dressing room with my little red dress on. He said, Dion, I don't like that red dress. <laughs> I, I mean, see, he scared me. I thought, I said, you can see. He said, no, but I don't like that dress on you. <laughs> I took that dress off and never wore it again. <laughs> That's my Stevie Wonder. Little Stevie Wonder so story. They, so you let him get to you. He got to me. <laughs> and then I found out how he knew of it, you know, but hey, that's, that was TV. And he's still a little devil. Still is. Elton John. Love him to death. Elton is probably one of the most giving, caring people I know. Um, his heart is, big as this room. That's, and he, and he lets you know it. He doesn't hide it. That's, I think, what I adore about him more than anything else. A dear friend. Quincy Jones. Quincy Jones, I met, ironically, through my doctor, Dr. Nichols. Um, God rest you too, Dr. Nick. He and Quincy were like this. In fact, they almost looked like they were twins. They were very dear friends and happened to meet Quincy before I even got into the industry. So uh, that became a part of our reiterating our relationship once I did get into the industry. And he used to call me Little Queen. And he still does. Michael Jackson. Another one of my babies. I love him to death. And that's another feisty little thing. I remember when uh, they first came to audition for Barry, and I happened to be at the audition. Barry invited a lot of people to come up to this little house he had in the hills, and the Jackson Five. Barry, you say Barry. Barry Gordy. Barry Gordy, of yeah. course. I'm sorry. That's okay. And um, at that audition, this little bitty thing came and sat down next to me. He said, "And who are you?" <laughs> just like that. I said, well, who are you? <laughs> he said, I'm Michael Jackson. I said, well, I'm Dion Warwick. <laughs> he said, oh, okay. <laughs> I said, what are you doing here? He said, I'm here to sing. I said, sing what? He said, I'm going to sing a Jackie Wilson song. I said, yeah. I said, can you move like Jackie Wilson? He said, yes. I mean, he's just a little feisty little thing. And... As in his growing years, he remained 
that wonderful little boy to me. Barry Manilow. Barry Manilow. Brilliant musician, a friend. You know, this is the best part of this whole industry that I've been able to do that. Relationships, yes, everybody. I mean, really. Uh, make friends of the icons of, our, of my peers of the industry. And that goes beyond that, too. I mean, it's the people I've been able to say hello to and having them embrace me and, and protect me. It, I mean, I got to write another book about that. But at any rate, Barry is um, another generous person, one that um, has the ability to step outside of himself to be of service to someone else, as he did with me, um, producing my very first recordings for Arista. You know, I had very large trepidations about him having that ability being that he was his own producer, his own songwriter, and and a recording artist. Could he turn that hat around and produce somebody outside of himself? Well, apparently he could. He proved that. Absolutely. Ronald Reagan. Ronald Reagan. <laughs> a very interesting man. He, um, the, he was a consummate... I always call him the, the acting president, you know, um, and because I'm not a Republican, he, he didn't resonate in that part of the political arena for me, but he was a very nice man. I mean, truly a very nice man. And um, I'm the one that got him to finally say the word AIDS because he skirted around that word Oh, I mean, he, he just would not say it. And even after he appointed me the ambassador of health of the United States, he just refused to say the word. And I got him to say it during a press conference. I made him say it. And he, I don't think he ever forgave me for it, but that didn't matter. The fact is that, that he, as a president, had to address the issue. And uh, finally, I said, well, you know, President Reagan has made me your, your only ambassador of health for the United States. And I am totally immersed in the fight against this devastating disease. What's, what's the disease called, President? Uh, 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 AIDS. I said, see, you can say it. It's called AIDS. And it's something we all have to combat, even you. Fantastic. Whitney Houston. My baby. She, um, what, what am I going to say about my family? Loves her, still love her, miss her desperately. She was the little girl I never had um, when she was a youngster, along with my two boys and my nephew and all the kids that were a part of my band. Their families, every summer they were on tour with me. Um, she was a little devil too, boy. She got everybody in trouble. Um, a voice that is yet to be even compared to. 
And again, she comes from that same Elka family that I do. And that apple did not fall far from the tree. Um, she lived as long as God wanted her to live. And um, where it was her life to do with what she wanted to do, how she wanted to do it. She was a grown-up. Um, she, by and large, was, she was really a good girl. She was a good little girl. She got caught up in, in an arena that was a little too big for her. And subsequently, it, it conquered her. That's what's heartfelt and fascinating about talking about this because you were caught up in the same business and you were able to combat the evil forces that were around you. Yeah, you know, I'll tell you something. My, my surroundings were completely different than Nippy's. Um, people like, I mean, who I consider the ultimate icons of our industry, embraced me. Sammy Davis Jr., Nat King Cole, uh, Frank Sinatra, Dean Martin, Ella Fitzgerald, Lena Horne, Diane Carroll, they all looked at me as the little girl. And they were doing what I wanted to do, where they were doing it. You know, I wanted to play the Sands Hotel, and I did. I wanted to uh, play the Diplomat Hotel in Hollywood, Florida, and I did. And it was all because they all just gave me the biggest embrace, individually and collectively. And basically treated me as, as as if I was their child, which I loved every second of, you know, being allowed to be in a room with these icons and hear the conversations they were having with other people and just being exposed to that, that echelon. Um, so my surroundings, completely different than Whitney's. Got it. A few more names. Uh, Diana Ross. Um, Diana. Actually, her name is Diane. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. I, I felt I did something wrong here. No, no, you didn't say anything wrong. She was given the name Diana by Barry. Barry decided that she was going to be the front of that Rolls Royce. Um, I know her as Diane, and that's what I call her. She is, um, she was, I called, our glamour girl in the industry. And I mean, truly, the glamour girl, and still is. She's, you know, with the hair and the makeup and the, the gowns and the da 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 you know, she always had um, a flair. Um, 
And there was always this this mystique with the two of us where everybody felt that we didn't like each other, we didn't know each other, we didn't, and yet she lived right around the corner from me. I'd see her almost every other day. We always were easy to talk to. Um, she was invited to any parties that I gave, as I was to any that she gave. Um, my children went to school together. So, and, and I think we finally came to reckon with it. She said, do you like me? I said, yeah, I like you. Do you like me? She said, yeah, I like you. I said, why do people think we don't like each other? I said, because they have nothing else to think about. Aretha Franklin. Riri and I grew up together, basically. She comes from a gospel background as well. I met her when she was 15 and I was 15. And she was singing a song called Never Grow Old before her father preached at programs that uh, she she was at. And that met her and Mavis Staples, who we were all kind of in the same age group. And that's when we all met during our gospel years. Gladys Knight. My gal. That's my girlfriend. <laughs> that is my one of my best friends. That's my sister. Truly my sister. She's acting now. She's doing anything she wants to do. <laughs> <laughs> and doing it very well. Awesome, awesome. So let's talk about the new album you have, real, because I want you to be able to take all the time you want. And like I said, I, I promised you stress-free. Um, <laughs> That's what it's been. Let's talk about Feel So Good, and let's talk about these collaborations with everybody from Neo to Jamie Foxx, Ziggy Marley, CeeLo Green, and of course, Gladys Knight. Talk about what this meant to you. I know your son, you know, working with family yeah. is so, so great. I hesitate to say anybody's name. I'm going to say uh, Damon Elliott, and you're going to say, no, no. I named him Damon. His real name was Dame. But I changed it to Damon for this no, album. No, I'm know, kidding. <laughs> in fact, I didn't. Uh, David named him. His older brother named God. him. And, and named him for one of his best friends in nursery school. Named Damon. <laughs> All the while I was carrying Damon, in fact. David said I was carrying kittens. <laughs> <laughs> on, this, on this album, what confuses me is not the concept, great concept, mm -hmm. that your son worked on and brought to you. Aren't you like a little anxious when somebody says to you, I want to do this song? Like, for instance, Cindy Lauper uh, wanted to do a message to Michael. When somebody comes to you and says that, after they make the call and you hang up, are you like, how are they going to be able to do message to Michael? <laughs> you know, like, are you a little anxious when you get into the studio wondering, are these people actually going to be able to pull it off? Oh, yeah. No, you know, I think the secret was and is... They chose the song that they wanted to do because it was one of their favorite songs. Like and with Neo, was, A House Is Not A Home. Exactly. That and I, I, I got to say that I did question him about that. I asked him, I said, are you sure you want to tackle this song? He said, yeah, I want to tackle it. And not only will I want to tackle it, I know I can do it. I mean, his whole persona was like, hey, <laughs> Come on, girlfriend. <laughs> so I said, hey, all right. You feel com that comfortable? Here we go. 
So there was no anxiety, no stress. And you go in and, and when you're doing a record like that, do you, because you, you obviously don't know how much time you're going to need with, let's say, Jamie Foxx. Mm-hmm. You can set aside whatever time you want. Like you said early on in your career, hey, we do three records. We a lot an hour each record. and mm-hmm. But when you're working with people who you haven't worked with before, is there a time limit or do you just go someplace and it's just like, is there any out time or is it like, hey, we're going in and however long it takes? That's exactly right. And I don't think that you can rush anybody's talent or how they feel or if they're ready at a certain time. When Jamie came to the studio to do... Um, Jamie Fox. Book, yes, Jamie Fox. Um, I asked him, I said, well, I, what song you, are you thinking about? He says, Deja Vu. I said, okay, fine. And when he came to the studio, he listened to the track and... Um, he said, okay, I'm ready. And he was ready. He went in and we stood looked at each other and did deja vu. And how, what's the shortest session there was on this album for a song and the longest one? Hmm. Like oh. you just you just went in and you'd like you you recorded this one thing and you finished the first take and you're like yeah. Okay, next. I guess we got it. Exactly. And, uh, and well, that's what happened with Gladys and me. I mean, even the the ad-libs just happened. It's not what we planned to do. We didn't even know how we were going to divide the song up. I just sing. <laughs> <laughs> and I, we just knew where... I was supposed to come in and where she was supposed to come in and if there was a harmony to that and it just instinctively happened. Um, no, you, I don't think you really could have, I could have put a time frame on any of the duets. And literally, I must say, one or two takes and we, were, we, we had it. Incredible. Um, talk a tiny bit about We Are the World. Oh, wow. What an event. Because that's exactly Because a lot of people don't know this about you, but you're an incredibly giving and charitable human being, and your performances probably, it wouldn't surprise me if the records and the things you've done have probably raised over a billion to three billion dollars in the charitable world, all the things you've been a part of. But talk about how that came together and how you were involved in it. And, and yeah, this is, that, that, that is an amazing story because I was performing in Las Vegas at the Golden Nugget, I'll never forget. And um, Quincy called me. He said, Little Queen? I said, Yeah. <laughs> he said, um, You need to be in LA. I said, I can't be in LA, I'm in Las Vegas. He said, what are you doing there? I said, I'm working. <laughs> he said, where? I said, I'm at the, the Golden Nugget. He said, oh, Steve. I said, yeah. He said, okay. Um, Steve Wynn was the Golden Steve Nugget Wynn, back then? yes. And um, he says, okay, um, but I need you 
in Los Angeles tomorrow night. I said, do you realize it's Saturday night? <laughs> Ain't no way in the world you're going to let me out of here. He said, okay, don't worry about it. And apparently he spoke with Mr. Wynn. And Steve came backstage after my show. He says, my plane is out at McCarran. It's going to take you to Los Angeles. I've already found someone who's going to do your show tomorrow night. And uh, I've been told that you are desperately needed to be a part of something that Quincy Jones says you have to be. I said, he did it. <laughs> he really did it. So I got on the plane, went to Los Angeles, and that happened to also be the night of the American Music Awards, which is why all of those people were in Los Angeles at the same time, timing that we're in show business. That's what it is, timing. And it was, it was wonderful. First of all, I got to see people I haven't seen in ages, years. And got to meet some people I didn't know. Um, to be a part of something that was going to be so important to those folks in Africa. And know that I was a part of that, to be able to feed them and to, to give to them something that they so desperately needed is um, it's really something you can't explain. It was one of those you-had-to-be-there moments. And you were there. One of the things I, I thought about when I first saw that recording is a very unusual thought that probably most people would never have thought of at the time of hearing such a beautiful song. Mm -hmm. The first thing that came through my mind was, how did these people decide on the parts that they were going to play without somebody saying, no, I, I want that line there. No, no, I, that's not fair that they get three lines and I only get this one line here. Like, I, I don't even understand how that was possible. Quincy Jones designated everybody singing what they're going to sing. I mean, they thought it was the most unusual pairing with me and, and uh, Willie Nelson. That's right. You know, it was like, Willie Nelson? Yeah, okay. Cool. That's my partner. <laughs> <laughs> Tell me your Mount Rushmore of singers. Tell me the four stone faces oh, on the mountain. Oh, my goodness. Marvin Gaye. Marvin Gaye. Absolutely. That's one. Johnny Mathis. Johnny Mathis, number two. Ooh-wee. Oh, this hard. This is hard. I'll give you some alternates. Okay. Give me some. <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't expecting it that way. All right. I'll go with one here. Um, I have to go with Michael Jackson. Yeah, he fit there. Very um, comfortably. I mean, they're just too many. I mean, I could go down the list. And because there are men on the mountain, then there's no women on the mountain, unfortunately. Right. And if there were, Gladys your face would be, be on there, there too. There. Oh, Gladys would be there before me, as far as I'm concerned. 
But I mean, you have Lionel Richie, you have Stevie Wonder, you have Johnny Mathis, you, uh, Frank Sinatra, and Sammy Davis Jr. I mean, the list goes on and on. That's a hard thing to give up just for. You know, a lot of people ask this question of people outside the music business, and I've never asked this question before because I always thought like it was cliche or what. But when I sit across from you, I think it's a very valid question. What music is in your digital player? What is in there that your go-to song that makes you smile and makes you feel good or the song or the music of who is it? It's very easy. I listen to Brazilian music. I know you spent a lot of time in Brazil. Yes, I have, and I love it. And that's where eventually that's, that's where I'm going to be for the rest of my life. But that's my smile, feel good music. And that's the music that I have on in my car and in my home. Your biggest disappointment in show business and how you rallied upon it took the the punch or the the tough moment and turned it around to something special. <sighs> hmm. Have I had one? <laughs> <laughs> I, you know, I guess, but it, but it became a positive for me. Um, when all of a sudden, I wasn't hearing me on the radio anymore. Um, there was a little thing called disco that came around. A young lady who subsequently became a very dear friend, Donna Summers, queen of disco, and I did not feel, and to this very day don't feel, that my listening audience would have allowed me to jump into that arena. That's not what they ever expected of me, nor I don't think I had the capability of doing that. Um, what it did, however, was it gave me an opportunity to have a family and to be at home and be a mommy and just be a human being for a minute, you know, without worrying about a hit record or anything of that nature. So she did me a favor, and I think that's why I loved her so much. And I told her that, too. I said, girlfriend, thank you. Um, and I guess doing a show called The Dinosaur, Variety Hour, and a young man named Clive Davis happened to be there, and we sat in my dressing room and talked, and who am I recording for, and I said, I'm not recording with anybody, I just got out of Warner Brothers, at any rate, um, he said, well, I just opened a new label, would love for you to be a part of a roster. I said, let me give that some thought because I really am ready to give this business up and use my credentials and teach. And to this day, what he said to me will continue to resonate with me. You may be ready to give the industry up, but the industry is not ready to give you up. Were his words to me. And I said, okay, let's talk about this. Incredible. 
your proudest moment in show business? Oh, winning both of those Grammys. Both of them? You won five of them, didn't you? No, I won two in one night. Oh, the two in one night. That's right. Yeah, that was... And that was so funny because <laughs> I had both of my babies with me. And we came in through the backstage area. And as I came in, they said, you just won. I said, just won what? <laughs> <laughs> and that was uh, for Deja Vu. And they took me out on the stage and they put my babies in, in the seats down front. And so I received my first Grammy. I said, well, that's some kind of entrance, isn't it? And uh, took my seat, and I know I'll never love this way again, but Pop, Deja Vu is for R&B, and Pop was, I know I'll never love this way again. So I won two of them, the only other lady that did it was Ella Fitzgerald, the only other lady. <laughs> Just speechless again. <laughs> Last question, I promise. Yeah, promises, promises. <laughs> Good title for a song, huh? That's right. <laughs> what advice do you have to the person living in a place like East Orange, New Jersey, or anywhere they are in the world, and they just can't even imagine what their future is going to be in the business, and maybe that person who's going to New York every day and coming back trying to figure out a way to make it, what words of wisdom that you can pull from everybody who's given you all the advice throughout the years and all the wisdom that you have that you could share with our audience of what it takes to to go from the humblest beginnings and have the kind of amazing life and amazing career that you have had and are still having. You know, that that's something I I I don't give advice because I don't believe anybody ever takes it, okay? Uh, I will encourage you. Well, you took the advice from Clive Davis. Well, it wasn't advice. It was a statement. So you're saying that you never took anybody's advice? No. Not even my parents. Really? No. And I, I think it's because I was always told and given the parameter of being who I am. You know, with or without people in your ear saying, oh, you should, you should. Why should I? Why can't I not take that route? And that is basically what I tell all the youngsters, especially, who say, oh, I want to be like you. I said, no, you don't. You want to be like you. That's truly the answer, be who you are. Do what you do. You can't do what I did. There's nobody in the world that can do what I do but me. So do what you do and be the very best at it. Know that it is not something that is handed to you. You know, Billy Preston said it so well. <laughs> something for nothing leaves nothing. Okay. And everybody has aspirations. I had many. I was going to be the Van Cliburn, female but Van Cliburn. And uh, I was going to be about Pavlova. I 
was on points before I sang, or even had thoughts of singing. And because I broke the tendon in my point foot, it transferred from my toes to my throat. So, <laughs> so I'm singing instead of dancing. But, you know, I think that is really the, the only thing that you can do is encourage people to excel in what they really, really know they can do. There's a lot of people who may think they can do what I do, find out very quickly that they can't. I remember a little girl that decided she, I can sing the songs that you sing. I know I can do that. So okay, sing promises for me. <laughs> and after she started, and didn't know where she was going. I said, no, no, you just sing promises. Huh, you can do what I do. And that's when she realized, okay, maybe I can't do that. Maybe I have to do something else. And that's the only thing I can tell you. Be who you are and do what you do. Dion Warwick, I am still speechless. <laughs> I am blown away. I am so honored that you came here and on this vacation time and spent time away from your family to sit down with me. And uh, this has been something I'll always remember as long as I live. And I hope Thank that's you. a long time. Thank you much. Thank you. And as always, this is Barry Katz with Industry Standard and... My slogan remains the same this year as it was in the past. If you like the show, tell all your friends. And if you don't like the show, tell all your friends. They say it's glory. I'll scream your name. Put you on shoulders, walk you to fame. You get all the money, drive that fancy car. All the people love you, cause you're going for life is for the dreamers. They have all to gain, it's never quite over. So it all feels the same You pick your own poison Dig your own grave Down in the valley A fortune Thank you for listening to Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of new episodes, which will be available for download every Monday, or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to BarryKatz.com. Before you leave, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast. Leave a comment and rate it, even if you think it blows. Thank you for your support, and have a great day.